everybody has potential and everybody can be taught. Just takes the right mindset. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 52 of A Congruent Life. My name is Andy Gray. Thanks for joining us for some conversations with some pretty inspiring people. A Congruent Life is all about authenticity, and in particular, we share stories of reinvention. That is, people that have the wherewithal to reevaluate what they're doing with their lives and go forward in a way that's more congruent for them. On today's episode, I'm talking with Diane Allen. Diane has been a professional violinist for decades and is now drawing on her experience in the music world to empower women to become more confident communicators. When I connected with her after we recorded the interview, Diane said that she really appreciated the opportunity to share her story. But she went on to say that she didn't realize how helpful it would be to her personally, that her personal journey has largely been a silent one, and it was really powerful for her to speak it out loud. I love that. It's such a great reminder of the power of storytelling, not just for those to whom we're talking, but also for our own personal work as we reflect on our experiences and frame them for others. So thanks for that powerful reminder, Diane. Here's our conversation. I'm talking today to Diane Allen, who runs a business called Eloquent Expression. Diane, welcome to A Congruent Life. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm glad to invite you. And I want to thank you for making the introduction with Emily, Emily Cortez, who was a recent guest on the show. Diane was the one who suggested Emily and was delighted to make that connection and have her as a guest. Yes, Emily inspires the heck out of me. And I was absolutely pleased to share her story with you. And I'm really glad that you took the ball and interviewed her for Congruent Life as well. It was great. Emily's delightful and really glad for the connection. And I I think that sharing her story was a real benefit to the show. So thanks for that. You're welcome. So let's just start, Diane. Can you give us kind of a quick introduction about who you are and what you're up to in the world? I have always been a catalyst for self-expression. Currently, that's been through speaking and empowering women to speak from the heart, speak with confidence. And in the past, it was through the violin. So what's your career been like? You say it's through the violin. Tell us a little bit about the role that music has played for you and maybe how, in a sort of broad strokes, how that's gotten you to where you are today. Violin has been in my life for 42 years. (laughs) Wow. I I always wanted to play the violin. Uh, When I was six years old, I was given the choice, what instrument would you like to play? And I was told people don't play the violin until they're eight. And that had to do with developmental structures in the brain that because violin is such a demanding instrument, a lot of times kids aren't ready until they're eight eight years old to be playing such a demanding instrument. Nowadays, they know how to teach violin to much younger children. I myself will take on a four-year-old and teach them with no problem. But back in the day, uh, you had to wait until you were eight. 
my upbringing was in suburban Cleveland, Ohio. I know how people love to tease about Cleveland being the armpit of the world, but Cleveland is actually a cultural mecca. What you may not know is that John Lithgow's father actually ran a superb Shakespearean festival in Cleveland. Cleveland is known for its world-renowned orchestra and musical training, and has an excellent, excellent art museum as well. My parents, uh, boy, they, you know, we would go to the orchestra. We would be the youngest people in the audience. I'd sit there and I'd watch the violin bows going back and forth, and that was my instrument of choice. I uh, played the violin all the way through high school, and when I uh, was asked, what would you like to do when you go into college? I really didn't think I had any other skills than the violin. I didn't have any confidence in a lot of uh, skills that we learned in high school, science or math, literature. None of it really felt like I had any strength in either in any of those areas. And because I had done music for so long, it just sort of felt like I just fell into that role of, okay, I'm going to have to pick something, may as well pick the violin. It, it wasn't a super empowering decision, but it was just like a ho-hum decision at the time. From there, I went to, it's kind of interesting, I went to the Peabody Institute, which is uh, Johns Hopkins, um, the music school at Johns Hopkins, Went there for two years and uh, specifically went there because I was afraid to go to New York. I wanted to go to New York to study at music, but I was I was afraid of moving out of the house first time. And Peabody had a really safe environment, really insular in a way. Uh, the dorms and all of the school buildings were all within one block, believe it or not. And two years of that, I was off to New York. I was ready and I went to the Manhattan School of Music, received my Bachelor of Music degree in a, an extraordinarily competitive environment. Uh, cutthroat, cutthroat. My best friend was at Juilliard at the time. We held hands throughout the entire experience. And then I went back to Cleveland and received my Master's in Music Performance at the University of Akron. And... After all of that training, which I loved, the, I loved my musical training. It was so much fun. Um, it was like, okay, now what do we do? Where do we go from here? And my husband, who plays the bass, and I, there's a very standard musical joke. Uh, what orchestra do you belong to? And the joke would be the Freeway Philharmonic. And uh, no joke, uh, we could get to... Uh, an orchestra gig, two hours in any direction from our house. We lived in one house and we could go in any direction two hours and get to the the next job. And so we lived our lives in the car and we would joke that we should sell the house and get an RV. Um, and during this time, uh, we were working, both of us, in all different directions, as I said, performing tons, tons and tons of orchestra music, many, many rehearsals, and a lot of grumpy musicians, and a lot of grumpy conductors, and all of this for very low pay. I had begun to teach 
actually, I had started teaching in New York. Um, a friend of mine was teaching violin and I was in New York. I was working in a law firm, actually. <laughs> uh, and as soon as I um, heard of this opportunity that I could take over her violin teaching studio, I grabbed it so that I could get out of the law firm. So I had begun teaching violin in 1986, even though I was still in school and never stopped teaching. I'm still teaching to this day, still teaching violin. I still have a few students. Fast forward, uh, you know, the freeway philharmonic life was replaced with uh, teaching more and more because it was more fulfilling, more I could control my environment. And the one-on-one -on -one reaction with the kids was a lot more fulfilling than hanging out with a bunch of grumpy musicians who were driving a lot to low-paying jobs with grumpy conductors. <laughs> Compound that with, uh, uh, over the last 20 years, um, music education has skyrocketed. Uh, we have more and more superstars coming out, um, but at the same time, there are less and less jobs available. Orchestras are folding, going bankrupt. So the job pool is shrinking. And I have been really, really grateful and fortunate to have such a long violin teaching career. How did that happen for you? you? You talked a little bit about preferring to teach instead of working in the law firm, but there's a big difference between being a skilled musician and being a skilled teacher. And so what was your process like as you found yourself moving in the direction of teaching? I don't remember much from our childhood, but I do remember in kindergarten being asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a teacher. Mm. I think I always knew that I was going to be a teacher. The other thing that I didn't mention <laughs> that I'll mention now about my musical career is that it was rocky. I must have really sucked, quite frankly. I had two teachers darn near throw me out of school. And it had nothing to do with uh, my grades. My grades were fine. I was acing everything. But uh, the, the problem with these competitive music schools is that the teachers are competitive. And their students um, kind of make their reputation as a teacher. So if you are not a shining student, um, you get a little jerked around, which is what happened with me. Uh, teachers pitting students to get each other. Um, there was some ugly behavior. And uh, the reason why I did leave Peabody was because that teacher um, decided that it would not be a good idea for him to teach me anymore. Um, it wasn't said in those terms. There was some ugly behavior. Um, and I, I just got out of there. <laughs> I went to New York. I was ready at that point. My teacher in New York stuck up for me, but um, he did have to stick up for me. He was willing to teach anybody, but the other cutthroat teachers thought that my quality wasn't up to par. I think I had always observed how my teachers taught me. And because things didn't come easy to me, I had to work my butt off. I could actually explain how I got my results. I went to school with a lot of rock star violinists. I mean, amazing. But yet they, it came so easily to them that they didn't know how to explain what they were doing and they could not teach. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs>
it's kind of amazing that with the negative experience you had with your teachers and that you were just describing, that that didn't turn you off of teaching. Yes, that was really bullheaded of me to just be blind like that. You know, I think at that point, remember I had mentioned that my reason for going into violin was uh, weak. It wasn't, it was like, oh, well, ho-hum. Once I was fully into the school student mentality, I just almost was in a rebellious state. I was reacting. It wasn't uh, like the energy was coming from deep within. Another lesson that I'm kind of hearing you say through the between the lines perhaps a little bit is you said that this didn't come easy to you. I think it's it's often we get stuck in this perspective when we're looking at, you know, we're getting to know other people and they're going on with their lives in whatever field that might be, whether it's music or sports or whatever they're involved in. We think, oh well, this person was just born with this talent. You know, there's this superstar kind of atmosphere around people's skills. And so much of it, I think, really is that sort of perseverance and hard work that you were describing. Absolutely. And there's all kinds of studies now. I believe the book is called The Outliers. I never read it because everybody told me about it, so I didn't bother reading it. But um, the evidence is, is that, you know, 10,000 hours of invested time in any one skill will turn you into a master, whether or not you have the talent. You know, it was interesting because I was, oh, there's all different kinds of musicians that I went to school with. Um, like I mentioned, there were many that um, took their talents for granted and didn't work as hard. And then there were people like me who uh, wanted it so bad. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but at that time, that's what I chose to do. And so I did I did do the perseverance route and practice very long hours and very diligently. All valuable skills that I'm happy to have learned. And how do you think that impacted your approach as a teacher? Similar to what I was saying, because I had to figure things out, because t the talent didn't come as easily to me as the people I was going to school with. Uh, it just gave me a lot more insight into actually being able to explain and share that information and teach it to others. So fast forward a bunch of years, you've spent years now teaching. I think you said something like 20,000 hours teaching, which is amazing. Yeah, and that's an underestimated amount because I know how many students I've had all the year for the years and how many I know how many weeks I've taught. Um, it's probably double that, um, but that was a conservative estimate. <laughs> Yes, many, many hours uh, sitting in a small room. I, uh, when I first moved to Bend, Oregon, I taught out of my garage in a very small room. And uh, we were able to add on to the house. I have a beautiful space now. Uh, so I really feel very fortunate to have a home office and a beautiful working space. And it's all good. <laughs> so as you look back on that experience and, and all those tens of thousands of hours, what are some lessons or insights maybe that stand out to you that have impacted your own journey through the course of being a teacher? That everybody has potential and that everybody can be taught. Just takes the right mindset. So you are now sort of moving out of music or at least emphasizing music and teaching less in your life. What has caused you to make this shift? For many years, uh, even though I've been teaching and performing all these years, I have always in the back of my head been looking. 
been looking for something else to do and not have all of my eggs in one basket. And there's a direct correlation with the age of my son, who is now 16, and my development, uh, obviously, when he was younger, uh, a lot of my brain space was just taken up with being mom, and it was great to have a career I could just rely on and also be here at the house when he came home from school. Even though I was teaching, he could still always come in and ask me a question, or if he was sick, I was always here. Um, so it worked out really well during his upbringing. But as he became older and less uh, needy, uh, my brain space opened wide up and I was entertaining a lot more ideas about what else could I possibly be doing other than the violin. One of the things that we did was uh, we bought a rental house right before the recession and we had to short sale that lost a ton of money, still have a pile of debt from that. Um, and that was frustrating. Uh, the other thing that was going on was uh, YouTube was in its infancy. And it was a amazing resource to be able to go onto YouTube, find a kid who... Um, was playing the same song as a student that I was teaching and then show them this video. And it would always have a much stronger impact than me playing the song for them to actually see a peer. The only problem with uh, YouTube in its infancy is I would be working with children and uh, some very inappropriate advertising would come up, such as tattooing or cleavage or you know, really inappropriate stuff. And I became... Uh, very frustrated that I couldn't use YouTube. I decided to uh, create my own website and use YouTube to host the videos, embed the videos onto the website and have the website be childproof or you know safe for children to come and enjoy. And at that time, I uh, started making tutorial videos and seeing myself on video, even though I've taught for so many years, seeing myself on video, was shocking. I realized that I needed to do something quick with my speaking skills, and I enrolled in Toastmasters. And for the first time since this whole um, being adult thing had started, <laughs> I actually fell in love with something new. And because of my all my performance background, I I just skyrocketed through the Toastmasters curriculum. It was just a, a little bit of information went a long way. I already had my stage presence down and how to manage myself in front of an audience. Uh, there was no fear of public speaking. All of that um, was already handled. And, you know, usually people go to Toastmasters to handle those pieces. So for me, it was just getting some education. And uh, that's how the public speaking began, was through this website and creating video tutorials for violin students. I think that's really cool that you were able to pull some different kinds of skills out of your career that didn't have anything to do with music, but yet you were used to being a performer. You'd perform for so many years in public settings and on stage and so forth. And then you also had this extensive career of teaching, of you know being in relationship with other people and teaching new skills that you got you to this point of being so empowered on a public speaking front. Yes, absolutely. 
one thing I, I don't want to gloss over before we move on is you mentioned creating a website and using YouTube. I wonder if you have some thoughts about the role of technology and the internet, perhaps, of stretching your business in different kinds of ways. You, you talked about some examples of how you did that. Do you have some thoughts about maybe how that enabled you to grow in new directions? Absolutely. I knew that I wanted to monetize this website in some way. I didn't know how. It coincided with my husband turning 50. Uh, he's three years older than me. And it, something clicked inside me. When he turned 50, it was like I had a sudden uh-oh. <laughs> and I knew I wanted help. I knew I wanted guidance, but I didn't think I needed any deep psychological help. <laughs> And I specifically, for some reason, turned to uh, the coaching programs that uh, were held through Tony Robbins' staff and met a young guy there who gave me the foundation for working online, uh, taught me how to set up email list, helped me figure out how to monetize the website. I had also published some uh, workbooks for learning a stringed instrument and uh, how to tie all this together and how to get it going. And, you know, those foundation skills, uh, my teaching model began in the, you know, 1986. So this was like the first upgrading of myself. <laughs> and what does it take to do business? Here we are in the next century. So, uh, you know, I obviously had a lot of upgrading to do, and that was definitely the impetus. So you had this this long musical career. You discovered this love of public speaking. What does that all add up to? What What is it that you're up to now, and where do you see yourself going? I know that from your other interviews on A Congruent Life that you have asked, was there a catalyst? And there was. I was with a different coach at this point. I had finished with the Tony Robbins program. I had, it was what just one of those serendipitous random things where a friend said, you know, I met this gal. I think you need to talk to her. I don't know why, but here's her name. And so I connected with this other gal. I started doing some coaching with her. And within the first 20 minutes, she had taken stock of all of my skills, the workbooks that I had published, the website that I created, all my teaching skills, all my performing skills and the speaking skills. And she said, Diane, can you not marry the performance skills and the teaching skills with public speaking? Like at that point, I had never even thought to combine it. It was all compartmentalized in my mind. Uh, yeah, that totally struck me in the forehead pretty hard. <laughs> and I tried that idea on. I began teaching workshops immediately and once I got over the shock of, wow, I can do this, uh, and I really enjoy it, uh, not to mention um, working with adults. I have had many adult students over the years, but mostly had worked with children. Really enjoyed working with adults as a change of pace. Very quickly became more and more involved with working with women and helping them liberate their own voices. I understand the complexities of being a woman. I understand the complexities of being on stage and speaking from the heart and not falling apart um, or putting up a front and trying to act like you're not yourself. I totally understand both of those sides. And it, it just seems like 
all of my skills are being brought to a much, much higher level and a much um, new purposeful need that I definitely feel compelled to fulfill on. That's fantastic. And I love the reminder, too, about the value of the coaching. You know, like you said, in retrospect, it was obvious, but sometimes we need someone to be that external mirror for us and reflect back to us. Here's what I hear you saying. Here's the connection that I'm seeing. And then we can you know, slap our heads and say, oh, yes, of course. Yes. And that's nice of you to say it, but it really felt like a rock got thrown at my head, but I liked it. <laughs> you know, sometimes when my mom and I hug, you know, we kind of hit heads and she says, boy, that always feels good to get a good hit in the head. <laughs> so now you say that you are delivering freedom for high achieving soulful women. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes. Real quick, back to my upbringing. Until the age of 11, I had a very traditional upbringing. Dad went to work, mom stayed at home, cooked and cleaned. My mom went and enrolled herself in college and began evolving. You know, we were one of the first families that experienced divorce in our neighborhood, in the family, uh, in that era of the 1970s. I straddled uh, my upbringing, was very traditional, and then... Uh, my mom evolved, and actually it was interesting because she didn't have any role models. She was a trailblazer for women in the workforce at that point in time. And so I knew I could go either way, and I experienced both sides. And, you know, it's because I had that upbringing, um, it's always back of mind. You know, if I'm going to be a working woman, I, I still have to kind of overcome some of those uh, traditional thoughts that I was raised with, Right. Fast forward, uh, here we are. Women are equally represented. I believe the statistics are even more so in school. I, I think 52% women in school compared to men. I can't remember exactly what the statistics are. But then you come up with other statistics, like uh, while women may be equal in the workforce, they are not in leadership roles. Clearly not. You do not find women in leadership roles. So what is going on? This is the new era of the women's liberation movement that started when I was little. They're not calling it women's lib anymore. <laughs> I'm dating myself here. Uh, I don't know what they're calling it. Uh, I know Sheryl Sandberg is calling it lean in, but I know that is controversial as well. But anyways, this, uh, this is, I believe, what's calling me forward to help serve women to speak to grow into leadership roles, to not have to model themselves after men. Just because a woman speaks her mind doesn't mean she's a bitch. You know, that's like the old style women who elbowed their way up kind of uh, stereotype. We don't have to talk like that anymore. So creating that new way of speaking is, I think, what I'm all about and empowering women to do that. That's really encouraging to hear. And I, I love hearing you talk about how you discovered that, you know, how you feel pulled in this particular direction to be of service in this way. What kind of advice would you give people who are unclear about that, that are feeling like, I don't really know what I want to do next? When I talk to people, sometimes they say, yeah, I know I want to do something. I want to be of service, but I don't really know how. And so I'm wondering if you have some advice for people that are in that situation of what do I do next? How do I get in touch with that thing that is calling me forward? 
One of the things that I hadn't mentioned yet was the violin piece had been deteriorating. I was losing interest without knowing it. I was withdrawing. I was taking on less work as a violinist uh, before I even knew what I wanted to do, before I even thought about the public speaking. So there was like a really deep organic part of me that was ending the violin career long before I mentally knew it which was really weird. It was almost like the speaking and the female thing came later. It was just a really slow, mulling, organic process. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like it's really right. Um, I'm getting a lot of evidence in the world that it's right. Um, I'm waking up early again. Uh, there's evidence in my excitement and my, I feel very streamlined about what I'm doing, very clear. Um, I don't have any dead weight energy around what I'm doing. It's all energy that excites me. So uh, I don't know that I can tell anybody else how to go about it. But if if this helps just hearing somebody else's way of doing it, I totally understand. And I, I'll tell you why. I'm not only the youngest in my family, but I'm the youngest of all my first cousins on both sides of the family. And so I'm very used to watching other people very used to watching how other people operate and act before I decide. And so I totally understand that as a model of, of uh, trying things out, um, letting other people try them out for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's certainly the goal of the show as well, is to be able to share these stories of authenticity and reinvention and basically learning from people that have, have been there and done that. And I think that the clue that you mentioned is an important one of really being in touch with that energetic pull that you said you, you almost didn't notice that your interest in violin was waning. But then when you, you discovered this new area of public speaking and empowerment of women and so forth, that that started giving you more energy, that you got excited to be up in the morning and, and engage in the work. Yes. And so I, I think it was a really deep energetic shift that, like I said, the words came later. And the, the intellectual understanding of it came later, for sure. So that brings us back to the overall theme of the show, which, as you know, is about authenticity. So, you know, given all of that that we've been talking about, what would you say that living authentically or congruently means to you? It's interesting because that's how I feel like I'm serving, actually, is helping women to be able to speak, is helping them to be authentic in public. But to answer your question more directly, it really does boil down to that for me anyways, the energy, you know, is, is it a ball and chain or is it empowering energy? Can you live free of stereotypes? Can you live free of pleasing others? Uh, can you live in a way where, uh, you don't have internal arguments with yourself all the time? You know, there's a, the internal voice is huge. Um, you know, can you be at peace with yourself? Yeah, so these are all questions to ask in living authentically. So what is going on in your world right now, Diane? What what are you excited about doing? I am excited about quite a bit. I have two different tracks. Let's talk about the speaking track first. I have done my training through Toastmasters. I'm about to, I'm within a year of achieving their highest award, uh, going through all of their curriculum. 
I really would like to finish that award, although most people might not know what a DTM means after your name. Toastmasters know they know what DTMs are, and that's fine with me. <laughs> it stands for Distinguished Toastmaster. Um, the other thing with regards to Toastmasters is that I have received over and over and over again encouragement to participate in the World Championship of Public Speaking. There's a young man here in Oregon who won that two or three years ago. He was the youngest to ever win. His name is Ryan Avery. He has been a huge inspiration to me. I looked at their uh, past winners and discovered that there are only five women who have won. And I believe this contest started, I can't remember, in the 1950s or 60s. It's time for another woman to win for another woman to win that and that I'm really dedicated to that goal this year that I'm going to be the winner of that world international speech contest and I'm going to be a woman and I am going to spearhead that. Uh, so I'm going to be studying very hard on that and practicing my speaking skills and working on some speeches for that event. Fantastic. That said, um, that's the speaking piece that has really called to me. Um, and of course, it's always just a journey for myself to learn anyways, whether I reach the goals or not. Um, those would be awesome, but it's all about the journey. The other piece is the coaching. So I have a course that I've taught a number of times, uh, and it's Confident Impactful Speaking for Women. It's a results-oriented workshop for women. I'll be enrolling. The details aren't quite out yet, um, but that will be a summer workshop that I will be teaching online. And it will include both pieces, which is you, the presenter, how do you manage yourself? How do you manage all that nervousness and the self-talk when you're in front of an audience, as well as what do you say and how do you say it? I have a new book coming out, hopefully sometime this May, by uh, the time you release this uh, audio, maybe the book will be out. And that book is a super short handbook straight to the point about some of the best tips I learned as a New York City trained violinist in helping people to uh, speak with uh, natural confidence in front of audiences. And so that's coming out soon. And those are the two with my coaching hat on. Those are the, uh, the coaching program online later on the summer and the book coming out. Those are the two things I'm really excited to be happening in my world at this time. How can our listeners engage with you, Diane? Feel free to call me. I far prefer to talk to people on the phone, and we'll include my phone number. I'm happy to include that email and come and see me at my website. And I'm sure that uh, you'll include all that information somewhere here on this blog. Absolutely. We'll put all that in the show notes. But your website is eloquentexpression.com. Yes. Cool. Well, thanks, Diane. Is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with about authenticity? Don't wait another minute. <laughs> Your time has come. Enjoy this time on this earth now. You know, I think that authenticity, living authentically, actually really means that you're eliminated a lot of internal frustration, internal arguments uh, to live at peace and to fulfill on what you are put on the, this earth for and to not go to your grave without being completely used up and wasted. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Well, Diane Allen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today and sharing your stories on A Congruent Life. Thank you so much, Andy. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Diane Allen. The show notes for this episode are acongruentlife.net slash 52 or acongruentlife.net slash Allen, which is spelled A-L-L-E-N. On that page is a link to Diane's book, Exude Confidence Naturally When Speaking in Public, Tips from a New York City Trained Violinist. Diane is also extending an offer for some free coaching to A Congruent Life listeners. Check out acongruentlife.net slash 52 for details on that. Thanks for the recent five-star reviews for the show, including Ted Jitsu and Taylor. I really appreciate it. If you would, please take a quick moment to leave a review for the show at acongruentlife.net slash iTunes or acongruentlife.net slash Stitcher. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to and supporting A Congruent Life. I really do appreciate all the support for the show. I appreciate you being here and checking out these conversations together. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.